Well, nearly a quarter of Canadians say they are eating less than they should. Food prices rose at our fastest pace in almost 40 years. More Canadians than ever are reportedly reaching out to food banks to feed their families. At first there were shortages, baby formula. That's the sound from a recent political ad from Canada's opposition leader Pierre Polievre with his trademark slogan, Everything is Broken. And although he blames the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, for all of it, which of course isn't totally fair, we are starting 2023 with plenty to worry about. There's inflation, there's the strained healthcare system, there's climate change and housing, the rise of far-right governments, including in Israel, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and how can we forget that COVID's got a new variant called the Kraken? And then we add the rise of intolerance in society and hate crimes against Jews and Western alienation and Quebec independence movements here in Canada. So it's enough to make you want to get under the covers in bed and stay there out of anxiety. And I felt that way after I read a new book by a Canadian policy expert, Professor Irvin Studen. It's called Canada Must Think for Itself, 10 Theses for a Country's Survival and Success in the 21st Century. Studen is one of the world's leading thinkers. He runs the Institute for 21st Century Questions. It's based in Richmond Hill, Ontario, just north of Toronto. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a graduate of the London School of Economics, and he's got a PhD in law from York University. And he spent his career advising governments around the world, including a couple of Canadian prime ministers. He's also a former professional soccer player, and he ran unsuccessfully for the leadership of the federal Conservatives in 2020. His new book outlines what we can do to either fix Canada over the next 20 years or lose it. What I mean to insinuate into the reader's mind and to fellow Canadians' mind, decision-makers' minds, leaders, is that we have seven crises of system in Canada simultaneously. So you mentioned the pandemic and you mentioned Russia, Ukraine. These are all episodes in different crises. Imagine the crises of seven balls in the air. The seven balls loosely represent Canada. And if one of them drops, the country can fall apart fast because they're all interconnected. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, January the 9th, 2023. Welcome back to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Well, it's great to be back again with you every day in your ears, on your computers. It's 2023, and we're starting off with a serious look at where we're going and what's happened in the past couple of years during the pandemic. Professor Irvin Studen believes the past couple of years have actually blown Canada off course. So what made us live in a safe and beautiful place, which worked well under federalism for the past 150 years, is not working anymore. He has 10 ways to turn Canada into a more independent and influential country, starting with poaching the best and brightest immigrants from elsewhere, growing the population to 100 million by the end of the century, where about 39 million now, and developing the North and the Arctic before Russia, China, and the Americans get there and do it first. His biggest worry is the impact COVID has had on Canadian kids. And to explain all this, we are joined now by author Irvin Studen. Thanks for being on the CJN Daily. Thanks for having me, Ellen. Happy New Year. So we're talking as thousands, maybe even a million or more Canadian students uh, go back to school after the break, Christmas break. I'm, I'm talking public schools. Uh, the religious schools, of course, is a different story. They don't take a big break uh, after Hanukkah, so they're they're studying. But one of the most important findings that you have come up with in your research has been the impact on 
what you call the third bucket of students from the pandemic who went AWOL from education coming out of the pandemic. The major catastrophe was that of the third bucket kids. So when the schools closed, we imagined that everyone pivoted frictionlessly, as it were, to online or virtual school. And I thought so too, here in one of the wealthier suburbs of of Toronto, my kids pivoted to online. And what I realized, and I I confess it took me several months to accept what I was seeing, what I realized uh, before long is that there's this third bucket and it's called no school at all. They're not in any educational system at all. And in Canada, the numbers peaked at, we, we approximated um, 200,000 at the nadir of the pandemic on a global student population of 2 million, it's not 1 million, 2 million for all of Canada and globally about half a billion in the third bucket. And you can imagine that many of these kids won't go to school when the schools reopen or when they didn't return to school when the schools reopened. And then they're thrust into a world either undereducated severely or with no education at all a world that is secularly more difficult and therefore they will die young or live miserable lives in very large numbers. And that is on our watch. We just didn't realize the systems we were closing or collapsing. And so I, I, I repeat, these weren't bad kids. They weren't necessarily on the bubble. They weren't necessarily a particular ethnic minorities. They were that as well. Uh, many uh, huge numbers of indigenous students But what happened essentially is if you close the schools, we didn't realize that many kids didn't have access to online learning, to devices, to internet. And that access diminished over time as resources became more scarce during the pandemic. Many kids were in abusive homes, many kids with disabilities, with linguistic problems, absence of English and French, parents who weren't there to supervise. And one of the capital categories that we Uh, failed to appreciate, particularly in Ontario, which had the longest, I repeat, the longest school closures in all of North America, and en passant, the largest proportion of the national student body, 20% of the the national student bodies in Ontario alone, the teenagers, so middle school and high school, as soon as you pivoted them to online school, lost its meaning. It lost the physical walls, we lost the mentorships, the relationships, boyfriends, the girlfriend, the sport, the culture. And so the defection from the second bucket virtual to the third bucket, no school at all, was a zero cost cost proposition. And that zero cost proposition became more probable as the lockdowns became deeper and deeper for schools, a matter simply of turning off the Zoom call, and they were out into the ether. And so they went there, and they were lost. No one was looking at them at the very moment in time when they need that narcissistic uh, attention. Nobody was even, in many cases, aware that this was happening. And so we, we'd worked to found the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids post-pandemic um, across 60 countries. But the, it started here in Canada because it was wealthy and poor kids alike. And it has the longest tentacles because that's our tomorrow. And that's why I say it's the biggest catastrophe, because tomorrow we'll see we'll have a huge quantum contingent of undereducated or patently uneducated Canadians who are our co-citizens. And what will we do? We'll have a highly unstable society with lots of um, very poor outcomes in terms of socioeconomic indicators, huge inequality. If anyone cares about equality, let's talk about education first and foremost, what happened there. 
and so on. So uh, for me, it was an unacceptable uh, tragedy for, for, for the youngest in, in our society. Where did you get the 200,000 figure? That's the domestic estimate at the high point, 200,000. It's lower now, but not significantly lower. What, what would it be now? I would be in the tens of thousands. It would be in the tens of thousands nationally. So like 50,000, 60? Could be, could be 50, 60, could be 70. And where did they go? They went to work. If, if you were a teenager, you could have gone to work. Uh, what, what role do you see the federal government playing in education to help these third bucket kids in Canada? Well, I should say, of course, there was a third bucket catastrophe, which was the most pathological form of a schooling catastrophe. There was a second bucket catastrophe and first bucket, which is the huge under under education during that period. So we have to reckon with both at the same time. All things total, the, we, the, the, the human capital that's coming to the universities, the colleges, the trades, the, the, the general working world is, is much diminished after the pandemic. So we have to reckon with all of that. And the first thing I call before any before I talk about any machinery of government machinery of government changes is that we never do this again, that we never close the schools ever, not for a pandemic generally, unless there's a war that's right at the gates. Certainly not on slope snow days. I'm against closures of schools for snow days or labor disputes. We must understand now that in Canada and in Ontario in particular, we become almost Paraguay, where we close the schools almost for sport. It's a national instinct. Um, Canada in Section 93 of the Constitution Act 1867, of course, has exclusive jurisdiction on education for the provinces. So be it. Uh, I, I protect that. But we are also the only federation in the world, federation, and certainly one of the only countries in the world without a national minister of education. So there's no one in Ottawa that monitors the education systems and worse still, is aware of this catastrophe. So this is a huge gap. We didn't realize it. And so I was for the creation of a, an emergency function in Ottawa that would help work with the, the provinces, both through funding and a watching brief and coordination, but also to, to let people know that this is a, a, a problem and learn from other jurisdictions to ensure that 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 we solve this problem with uh, not just with urgency, but but with with conviction, because it is the future of, of the country. It's preparation of our young people and our country for tomorrow or not. And we're for now in the or not category. You mentioned about it's a catastrophe. And when you talk to people about your your uh, assessment of where Canada is, how Canada's future looks, are you at all surprised when people say these things? Like, am I the first person to tell you, boy, boy, this is a very depressing book? I hope the book is not depressing because, as I say, I think in the preface and as I state in most of my work about it for Canada and almost all my professional thinking is about the future of our country. I say it as a patriot. I say it as someone who is fighting for his team. Canada's my team. I'm not going anywhere. We're on the back foot. This is our darkest modern hour, and I'm here to fight. Every country goes through it, and they go through it in spades worse than, than, than we have it today. But we're on the back foot, so we have to fight. I'm also a very direct person, so I don't want to talk in niceties about how good we are and how good we have it and what a great country we are when things are not good. Uh, that won't get us anywhere, and it will only paper over continued disintegration. And I do mean disintegration. All countries have a shelf life, as I articulate in, in the book, and ours does too. I just don't want it to be within our lifetime or my kids' lifetime. 
uh, long may it prosper because as I also say in the book, it would take another millennium to create another Canada. We are the size of the Roman, Ottoman, and Persian empires combined geographically, and we're peaceable, and we have uh, more than a century and a half of peaceful, complex, advanced democratic existence. So why would we be facile in, in the loss of the country? But we're on the path, more on the path towards loss than continued existence at the current juncture. So just to say that the posture of the book is very blunt analysis, and patriotically driven prescriptions for getting us out of it, if we wish to. And of course, we I, I wish to, but it takes a lot of work. And that's where I worry. Okay, we need to move towards how your solutions towards the end of the book. I think you see this one of the main solutions to Canada becoming a middle power with, with uh, confidence and swagger is through the North. Populating the North poaching people from the best and brightest and in building uh, the infrastructure up north and Canada needs to do that or others are going to do it for him. That's the message I got. What I'm looking for is sources of energy, human energy. I'm not talking about fossil fuels first and foremost. I'm talking about human energy. So we collapsed all these systems. We need huge energy to get back. Where is it going to come from? It will not come from, with the greatest respect, the repaving of roads, uh, a sidewalk here, an opening of a little business, a Google outlet here, uh, a little production, nice restaurant. These are things we tell ourselves on Twitter, but they don't provide the requisite energy to resuscitate or reconsolidate our institutions at the requisite level. So what can do, it can only be something at massive, massive scale. So we're talking about national uh, projects, you know, plans 20 years out, that really mobilize all the resources of the country and the population, all the dreams, and also get our young people going because they want them to dream. They are first and foremost at, 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 the, at, the, at the front of my, my thinking because we've, we've done them wrong. And the North provides us with a huge opportunity married to imperative. That is the North, where I've done a lot of professional work, ought not in my vision to be viewed as a frozen tundra as we do in, in as we see it in Montreal, Toronto, or, or Vancouver. That's the brief from the south. The brief from the north is that it's just another border. And it happens that that border is opening up because of the objective melting of the ice. My brief is not that we're going to refreeze the ice. We are not, whatever we tell ourselves in the south. So we're going to have to manage it and master it, or someone will do it for us while we disintegrate. Fortunately, that mastery of the north marries with the need for national energy that is human energy and it also happens that the geography is very favorable for a bright future we border four continents continental north america uh asia east asia in particular which is the most dynamic most important region in the world bar none i say this unsentimentally post-pandemic the former soviet space and europe so eurasia and europe all told, a seven to one ratio of market advantage in terms of numbers over North, over United States alone, right? And if we if we build it, if we master it, so I imagine I have a thesis in there that I call "White Horse Becomes the Center of the World." And today, White Horse is not known by anyone, but it's most one of the most beautiful parts of Canada with the most educated population, but a ridiculously small population. White Horse. Yukon itself is the size of France. 
Northwest Territories the size of France, Ukraine, and Germany, and none of it bigger than both of them. All told, those three territories are as big as the European Union. Okay, but the population is the size of Ajax, Ontario, 115,000, bordering these seven to one large market that is the future. And it's there for the taking. So we have to provide the energy infrastructurally, demographically, in terms of population, politically, economically, academically, scientifically, environmentally up there. And so there's a shift in the political energy and, and footprint where that in the future becomes the Toronto. It becomes what Halifax was in the, in the late 19th century. It becomes what London was in the, in the, in the 20 or Hamburg, the center of the world. And I'm, I'm, I, 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 uh, commend to to southern Canadians to imagine not that we're building forts against the Russians, but we're actually embedding the Russians, the Americans, the Chinese, the Europeans in our own framework. We become the term setters. And you imagine just daily flights between between uh, Yellowknife and Shanghai, between uh, Whitehorse and, and St. Petersburg, between Oslo and, and Dawson City. And, and that becomes our tomorrow. And so that, that also requires our young people to see it. And that's where the idea of traveling the country comes in. And it also gives our, our young people something to dream about. They get excited. We've it's collapsed. It's kind of like a dreams. birthright. It's kind of like an internal birthright trip. It is our birthright because we're Canadians. We just don't know our, our own country. Can you imagine? My most interesting conversation about the Arctic was at a conference. I was speaking about actually about the Russia conflict in Tel Aviv. And the best questions I got about our Arctic, because I brought up the Canadian Arctic as and the center of the world, and was was from Israeli listeners. They were so curious and they had business ideas. And how come we're so incurious about our own geography? And I, I say this with some upset because because it bothers me that we're so incurious about our own country that we're not ambitious. Uh, we don't know its geography, and and we don't we don't fight therefore to, to fulfill its potential. The Chinese will see it. The Russians certainly will see it. They're all built up there. The Americans have huge energy. So if they get going, they'll roll over us. It bothers me that there's a happy instinct in Canada to say, let the Americans figure it out and we'll we'll take the dividends of that. And I say, well, if there were a certain type of presidency, I don't want to articulate the name, but a 2.0 2 version of it, it would be parasitic. I mean, they, that territory could be annexed very fast if you look at other examples around the world. And then we would be done for sure. And then we could see what real misery looks like. On the other hand, if we embed all these major countries in our own web, cunningly divined, I, I see it's not as a middle power, because I think that actually is, it's not a term that's appropriate for either the present or, or the future. I see us as a term-setting country, a major country of the 21st century. And that's the better future. And that's 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 where the book ends, this, that there's there's uh, worth in, in, in building towards that that future and it, and it may well be our savior back to the north before we end i have one two questions it's dark up there half the year and freezing cold so i know that it's great idea to have airports and five universities and and people moving there 100 million people moving into canada and what 10 million up there but it's dark who wants to go there why would anyone come to winnipeg in the abstract when they could go to costa rica I, I asked that today, yeah, in the in the in the, at the nadir of, of of winter. I prefer Costa Rica, but Winnipeg is my country, so we must build it. 
And we have enough internal migration capability to attract people there, sometimes to get people there uh, through other mechanisms. And we talk about when you talk about immigration, I do talk about numbers that are now being vindicated in part through our work by 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 the national government. Uh, some of them or many of them would go up there. And by the way, they would go gladly and willingly. And many populations do very well. You'll be surprised that it's said that the future mayor of Whitehorse will inevitably be a Filipino. But Canadians are, are, are uh, I think, very excited about the North. Young people would be interested if there were properly choreographed opportunities to, to do stage there, to do internships, to, to go to university up there. It is exciting. And especially if you paint it, I think, in the contours that I described, that is that it's not some distant tundra. It is the center of the world. If you want to go close to Asia, we're closer to China and and East Northeast Asia through the North than Australia is. And if you want to, and, and if we want to broker a peace with with Russia, if we don't want to be frontal enemies and destroy each other, and that's the only other option on on the current path, then the brief is through the North. That's the peaceable space. It is not a brief through Europe. If we want to. If we want to outmaneuver the United States on our own geography, it is through the North and, and also meet their own their own uh, security preoccupation. We do them a, a solid in that sense and make ourselves filthy rich uh, while we're at it and, and advanced and, and technologically ingenious and, and have uh, term setting in the environment and, 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 and all the things that, that concern us today with the South. The North provides that. So... What I'm actually trying to reverse is to say that it is not dark. Canada is the center of the world. We're not a, an annex of the British Empire or a vassalized outpost of the United States or a backward outpost post-pandemic. We're actually the center of the world. Now, what do you do? Look at other centers of the world that have far less uh, geographic uh, marge de manoeuvre, but that have been able through their minds and through an interesting mental map to maneuver into survival. Israel is obviously foremost, but borrowing from Israel, you have Singapore, you have the UAE now. They're all strategically cunning, intellectually promiscuous, grabbing lessons from around the world and looking 360 to survive. Our problem is that we have much bigger and more complex geography and wicked major power neighbors. So we have to do that much more work. And we're that much more behind because we've had 150 years of very deep stability. So the mind is not on that. The mind is on what I call the appetites. Let's go to the dollar store. Let's plan a weekend outing. Let's go shopping. And we don't have enough of a class of people, a school of people who are dreaming about the future of the country. So the young people must step up. They're on the back foot because of education collapse and deficiencies and instability. So this gives them a bit of an out outlet. And I am for even creating uh, a year whereby instead of the military, we talk about service in the North, become professional, see the world, help your country and, and help help us secure our 21st century. It's going to be an interesting one. So first of all, who's going to pay for all of this? Because infrastructure, um, bringing immigrants to Canada and you know making them go to certain places, building all these institutions, did you? I didn't see a cost in your book. What I flip on its head is the idea that for any immigrant to come, as, as you suggest, there needs to be a job opportunity. So you come and you come for to fill job X. And I say no, as, as, as I suggested with the Israeli conversation, if we pick off specific immigrants around them, and I really do mean headhunting ruthlessly around them for the best, 
we, we get term setting job making immigrants here, and they will be providing a thousand jobs for every one immigrant spot rather than taking up one job for every immigrant. They're not here to pick up a discrete post as we imagine it. They're here to create employment for other Canadians and other immigrants. Uh, the other thing is that, of course, in the collapsed economy, it is only government that can be the first mover. Government must be, it's not a private enterprise that all of a sudden is going to say, I'm going to build up the North. Nobody's going to do it in today's Canada because of the collapse in business and collapse in business confidence over the last two years. Why would you do it? And two, because of the scale, the scale involved. So government's got to be the first mover, whether it partners with businesses or how it does it is a secondary question, but it must be done at scale. That's hence the 20-year the, the, the plan concept. And with speed. Here I'm talking about Chinese type speed rather than Canadian type speed. Look how we build roads in, in Canada. Whereas the Chinese approach is when people go to sleep, we pave the road and when we wake up, it's ready. And that it's that type of not just efficiency, but seriousness we need to apply. And by the way, it might even require uh, some some foreign expertise. You know, the, the, the Japanese recovered from the Second World War by bringing foreign expertise to, to up their technology standards. So we'll need Americans, we'll need Chinese, we'll need some Russians, we'll need some Japanese, and we'll need a lot of Canadian talent to, to do this, but with speed. But then there's, of course, people are, are going to have to not deal with the environmental impact, which takes five years before you can start anything. This is Canada we're talking about, not China. What I want to avoid in the book, and that's why I'm, I'm direct in the language, is sentimentalizing failure. Because a serious country is one that knows failure means death. Failure means death of the country. And we almost lost the country in this pandemic. And we still could lose the country soon. And therefore, we must approach these tasks with the seriousness of a country that knows the next failure means the death of the country. We're not there. Because if we say, well... I have, uh, we need to build this by Monday, but I have plans. I have a vacation and my kids have that. And all oh, the, 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 that store is closed or we have these environmental considerations or, or that gets in the way. And I'm saying that's 2019 Canada. We could afford to fail. And in 2023, 2024, failure is death. And in the configuration I describe, I say, if we're not thinking for ourselves, and if we're not delivering our own results, we die. And, and by the way, we, we may well deserve that death. Historians will say Canada just wasn't a serious country when push came to shove. We had a good run. And I fear that we're on that path. And I, I want to stress unsentimentally that we must achieve those results. And it's huge work. It's, it's scary. And it's its scale, but is existential. And other countries have done much grander things under worse circumstances. So let's go. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this first episode of 2023 of the CJN Daily, sponsored as usual by Metropia, integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout out goes to Seema Aronovich of Hamilton, she wrote to us about the episode we did with Canada's Jewish community leaders worried about the right-wing policies of the new Israeli government. Sima was born in a refugee camp in Europe after the Second World War. She writes that she loves Netanyahu, and she wants people to remember how Israel served as a refuge for nearly a million Jews from Arab lands after they were thrown out 
after the Holocaust. She recommends everybody watch a documentary called The Silent Exodus. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. If you want to support us, go to the link in our show notes and you can donate to the CJN through Canada Helps and you'll receive a charitable tax receipt. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.